You are now listening to the December 10th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the 12 Disciples of Jesus Christ. The last time we looked at all 12 disciples who Jesus chose in the beginning and Matthias who replaced Judas Iscariot. Today, we will talk about Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles and probably the most influential person in church history although he didn't belong to the Twelve Disciples. Paul's original name is Saul, which is the same name as the first king of Israel. Scholars tell us that Saul is a Hebrew name, but Paul is the Greek pronunciation. Some people say that Saul was his name before he believed in Christ and Paul after he believed in Christ. But that's not true. In the book of Acts, There were changes that even Saul was called Saul in the beginning, and then all of a sudden, Saul called Paul. This is because Paul spread the teachings of Jesus to the Jews in the beginning, then to both Jews and Gentiles. It was at that time that his name changed. Paul was born in Tarsus, Sicilia, in the first century, a southern part of Turkey. Geographically, Tarsus was the main city and culturally the big city under the Roman Empire because it was a main trading city which connected east and west. That is why people in Tarsus were Roman citizens and they were proud of living in Tarsus. Paul's parents were Jewish with Roman citizenship and lived in Tarsus. Thus, Paul was born with Roman citizenship naturally. During that time, having Roman citizenship meant significant power, authority, and prestige. Paul's parents were known as being wealthy, and thus Paul was able to access various learning and knowledge. It is possible that Tarsus, where he lived, was the cultural hub. In addition, Paul was known to study the Hebrew Bible under the leading Pharisee, Gamaliel. If Paul learned from Gamaliel, he must have moved to Jerusalem as Gamaliel taught in Jerusalem. As for Paul's teacher Gamaliel, it's written in Acts chapter 5, verse 34. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people. Paul introduces himself in Acts 22.3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. It is written in Acts 5, verse 34, that Gamaliel is a Pharisee and Paul studied under him. Paul is also a Pharisee. By his own account in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, 
Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. As he said, Paul was not the apostle of Christ from the beginning. Rather, he rejected Jesus Christ and persecuted people who were Christians. After the resurrected Christ ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit came to people who believed Jesus as Messiah at Pentecost, and the first church of Christians was born. However, soon after the first Christian church started, Hebrews, Pharisees, who didn't acknowledge Jesus as the promised Messiah, started persecuting Christians. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that Jesus died on the cross was because of these people. They demanded Jesus be crucified on the cross because they refused to believe that he was the Messiah and that Jesus was harmful to their lives. Of course, all things happen within God's plan, which was to save sinners by sending his only son as the sacrificial offering. After the first church was born, Hebrews started persecuting churches, and Stephen was the first martyr from the persecution. Acts 6 writes about Stephen. Opposition arose from members of the synagogue of Jews against people who believed Jesus as the Messiah. The Jews were considered to have rejected God since they didn't believe Jesus as the Messiah as the Christians did. Thus, they persecuted Christians and shut their mouth not to say that Jesus was Messiah. And they accused Christians of being against Moses and against God and put them in jail. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Stephen conveyed the truth to the Sanhedrin and proclaimed that Jesus is the promised Messiah. At this, they dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul, which is written in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. That Saul is Paul. At that time, Paul thought Stephen deserved to be stoned. Paul loved God, and he thought stoning Stephen was for God's sake. Paul believed that Jesus was not the Messiah, but he was an impostor who confused people. Churches in Jerusalem began to be persecuted after Stephen's martyrdom. It was at this time that the followers of Jesus moved to avoid the persecution. It was Paul who played an important role in the Christian persecution. Paul searched Christian churches, put followers into jail, and closed the churches. When followers moved to avoid Paul and the Pharisees, anywhere they went, they spread the gospel and increased the number of followers of Jesus. Paul was sent to many places to seize Christians and put them into jail. So what caused Paul to become an apostle? We will continue on next time. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is O Little Town of Bethlehem. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. I would like for you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. And I'll start in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called what? Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, whom was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that they had been told concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the eighth day, that is the, according to the law, that is when baby boys in Israel should be circumcised. So at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Jesus, Yeshua, which means salvation. And when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, uh, the law said that uh, your firstborn son should be offered to the Lord, but rather than the Lord taking your child, you can offer a sacrifice in place of that and offer, basically it's like offering your child to the Lord through sacrifice. As it is written, the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, belongs to the Lord, and they are to offer a sacrifice according what is in the law of the Lord, which would be a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That would be for the Savior to come. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
listen to how the Holy Spirit is leading Simeon. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. So that means he just happened to come into the temple at the very same time as Joseph and Mary were there making their offering. It just happened, you know, oh, sure, happened. The spirit leads him just that perfect uh, intersection. And he came into the spirit in the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This baby is just a little more than a week old. I am not handing my kid over to anybody. How about you guys? No. You know, as, as grandparents, and even when we had our three kids, and now we have the four grands, uh, we knew, and we have been instructed, like we didn't know, uh, that we don't hand that baby to anybody, okay? Only to the approved ones. So here this stranger, Simeon, is reaching out, and he's taking the child, and it says, and he says, and he blessed God, praise you, Lord, and he said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace, according to word. Now I can die, Lord. Because, verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So he's holding this baby Jesus and he's saying, here, Lord, is salvation. Here, Lord, is a light for the Gentiles. Here, Lord, is the glory for your people, Israel, holding this baby. And his father and his mother marveled at what he was saying. Can you believe? Whoa. And Simeon blessed them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give him your peace. He blessed them. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed. I just want you to know, Mary, not everybody is going to receive your son. And what they think about your son will either cause him to fall or it will cause him to rise. In verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day, night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. And she is now this Old woman is going around, I've seen him, I've seen him. Our Savior has come. So that's Luke's account. This story is not new to you. I mean, there's not much to point out that you don't already know. But I want you to look at the Christmas narrative in a whole different way, if you can. I've done some research about Bethlehem that I want to share with you, all right? I had a message already for us 
box the wrap, the bow tied already. And wouldn't you know, like a day ago, the Lord, now I don't like audibly hear a voice, but the Lord just gave me a strong impression. I read something and the Lord saying, no, put that away. I want you to do this instead. And I'm Lord, I'm freaked out because I like to be more prepared. I like to not stumble over my words. I want to do all of this. And it's just like, no, this is what I have to do. This is what I'm going to share with you. And kind of the Bible studies, what the Lord gave to me, maybe it's not highly refined and polished like it could be, but it's okay if I share it with you anyway. You may not know it, but the town of Bethlehem is mentioned many times in the Bible. I want us to think about Bethlehem. Most of the time it's mentioned, it's in the Old Testament. But I want to see the significance. I want us to look at the significance of what happened in Bethlehem long before Jesus. I want us to look at that, and I want you to see if there's anything about Bethlehem that would point to Jesus in the Old Testament. I'm excited. Okay, the very first, I'm not going to give you all the references because we would be, you know, looking up verses and it would take us a long time. So occasionally I'll give you the, the verse. If, if you need it, I can give it to you some other time. But the very first mention of Bethlehem is in Genesis 35. And Bethlehem is associated with sorrow and with a son with two names. Bethlehem is associated with sorrow and a son with two names. It was a sad day in Bethlehem when Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, was dying while she was giving birth to a son. As she was dying, she found out it was a little baby boy. She named her son, name him, name him, Benoni. Ben in Hebrew means son of, and Oni means sorrow. Name him the son of sorrow. Well, later, Rachel was buried at Bethlehem. And after she was buried, her husband Jacob says, no, I don't want my son to have that name. I want to change his name. I don't want him to be remembered always as the son of sorrow, I want, I want to rename my son to Benjamin. Ben means son of, we already know. Yamin means right arm or right hand. Son of my right arm, son of my right hand. And see, to the Hebrew mind, the right hand, the right arm is the arm of strength. It's the arm of power. It's the arm of authority. That's what that speaks of. So you're the son of my right hand, my right arm. So let's summarize this. The very first mention of Bethlehem in the Bible, it is associated with sorrow and a son with two names. Now, I want to just go through and see the other major references to Bethlehem. And again, it's all going to tie together. If you just hold on and you follow me, it's all going to tie together. Say that. It's all going to tie... Okay, that's a statement of faith for you. It's fact for me, all right? The next time Bethlehem is mentioned, we're told that a ruler, a judge, came from Bethlehem. There was a time when Israel was ruled by judges before they had a king. 
And there were great judges and there were bad judges. And, and one of the judges that came from Bethlehem, we don't know a lot about, but, but the Bible has given us an interesting fact about him. He had a lot of kids. The writer of the book of Judges remarks in Judges 12, he says, after Jephthah died, Isman from Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He sent his daughters to marry men outside his clan, and he brought in 30 young women from the outside his clan to marry his sons. Isman judged Israel for seven years, and when he died, he was buried at Bethlehem. One very busy judge in a whole lot of ways, amen? So Bethlehem is associated with a ruler, a judge who had a whole lot of kids. Moving on through the Old Testament, we're told that a priest came from Bethlehem. It's just kind of an incidental note, just a priest from Bethlehem. The next mention of Bethlehem is in the book of Ruth, which is a story about a redeemer. If you know the story of Ruth and Boaz, you'll know that it is a wonderful story of uh, redeeming a widow, Gentile widow, a young widow from uh, what would have been just a hopeless state. Her husband had died, and as a result, she was left probably to beg and, and die. She was a Gentile in Israel. But Boaz became her kinsman. He became one who was close to her, and through a legal proceeding, he redeemed her and she married her. He married a Gentile woman, this, this redeemer. It's, it's quite a story if you read the book of Ruth. Then a, a big place where Bethlehem is, is spoken about is in 1 Samuel, when there was a wise man, the prophet Samuel, looking for a new king. When he first arrived at the family of Jesse, he, he told them that he had come in peace. You see, when this wise prophet comes to your house, I mean, you have the prophet of God showing up at your house, you're going to think, oh, praise the Lord. You're going to think, uh-oh, right? What has happened? Bad news, or what have we done? Boys, you know, uh, Jesse has several, what have you gotten yourself into? And, and the prophet, the wise man says, no, 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 no. I come in peace. In the beginning, this wise man looked for this new king among those who would be the obvious choices. Uh, Jesse had uh, big, strong, strapping uh, sons, you know. Well, and Samuel thought, well, it must be this one. No, it must be this one. No. And he went, his sons, and he says, is there anybody else? And he said, oh, yeah, we have a, I have a little guy. Where is he? He's out in the field with the sheep. He's shepherding the sheep in the fields of Bethlehem. That young man, David, became the anointed one of Israel. Now, the word anointed, whether you're anointing a king or an object, whatever in Hebrew, is the word, uh, we get the word Mashiach from it. It would be a 
some use of, of a root, Mashiach. Now, Mashiach in English sounds like what? Messiah. So a Messiah is the anointed one. That's what a Messiah is. So in a way, David is anointed king. He's Mashiach. He's anointed Messiah, do you almost say, to become the king. So here is somebody you'd never expect at a place you'd never expect, doing something you'd never expect, who is anointed the new king. Interesting story. Then the next thing that happens that we read is that an evil king seeks to kill the new king. And we go on to read that the city of Bethlehem, you go later in the story, the city of Bethlehem is occupied by evil people for a period of time. The next place is, says that Bethlehem would be later a place of safety and defense. And the last reference to Bethlehem in the Old Testament is in Micah chapter 5. So Micah chapter 5 verse 2. The prophecy declares, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, you're just a small little place that you're hardly on the map. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth. Where'd he come from? Well, from of old, from ancient days. This ruler, this um, in Israel, this coming forth from the Lord is from ancient days. In other words, he's always been. This is a strong a declaration that the Messiah would be divine. He would be God from Bethlehem. And there it goes up to say, verse 4, that this Messiah born in Bethlehem, verse 4 says, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So this Messiah who's from ancient of days, this, this Messiah who is God will be known as a shepherd of the sheep. Jesus says, I'm the what? Good shepherd. And verse 5 says, he shall be their peace. He comes, he will come in peace. I want you now to look at, the, at Bethlehem and, and see it's, how its history prefigures the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So now we're thinking and we've got our gospel glasses on. And look how every instance Bethlehem is mentioned is a picture of the life and work of Jesus Christ. It is just amazing. First of all, the first mention of Bethlehem is that it is associated with sorrow and a son with two names. Well, let me tell you about Jesus. He came and he was a man of what? Sorrow acquainted with our grief. Jesus suffered. He's a suffering servant, the Bible says. Jesus gave his life. He offered his life. Benoni, 
the son of sorrow. When God sent his son, he sent him to die. He was the son of God's sorrow. But his name couldn't remain there. He didn't stay the man of suffering. Instead, Benjamin, he is the son of God's right hand. He is the son of God's strength. After his resurrection, Jesus ascended in heaven, where right now he stands at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Amen? He's the son with two names. The son with two names who came from Bethlehem. That cannot be coincidental. I'm telling you, there's no way. The next mention of Bethlehem is that a ruler, a judge, with many children, comes from Bethlehem. Jesus is a ruler. Jesus is our judge, but he has many children, many who he has saved, men and women, through the thousands of years that are his kids. He has a lot of children, amen? You're one of them. A priest came from Bethlehem. Well, the entire book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is now, uh, he's fulfilled the earthly model of the temple and the priest, and that Jesus now is our heavenly high priest. The next mention of Bethlehem is where a redeemer resides, and marries a poor, helpless, widowed Gentile and brings her into the family of God. What can I say? Jesus, our Redeemer, has seen us poor, (laughs) helpless people, Gentiles, and he has laid down his life for us, and he has adopted us, he has redeemed us, brought us into his family. A wise man, Bethlehem speaks of this wise man, the prophet Samuel. Jesus comes as a wise one. No one, it says in him, all the treasures of wisdom of earth and heaven are found in him. Uh, Jesus' people always coming to him for wisdom. Uh, some people like Nicodemus want to know, you know, give me wisdom. Uh, what can it be to, to be born again? The woman at the well, she has questions. Jesus has wisdom for her. And, you know, his enemies try to trip him up with their trick questions. Jesus, in his wisdom, just answers them every time. He's the wise one, but he comes in peace, just like Samuel in Bethlehem. He came in peace. The people were afraid when they they saw him, just like the shepherds were afraid when the angels declared the Lord had come. The word to the shepherds was peace, peace, shalom, peace. Samuel said, I come in peace. There in Bethlehem, Samuel realized that it's not what's on the outside that God's looking at. It's what's on the inside that counts. Samuel realized that uh, God chooses those who might not be chosen by anyone else. God chooses people who aren't the right place, who aren't born the right way, who might not have the biggest and best situation. And when Jesus came into this world, he didn't come, you might say, the right way, or at least not the way anybody would expect the Messiah to to come. Bethlehem would later become a place of safety and refuge. 
And of course, that last reference to Bethlehem in Micah 5, 2 through 5 is talking about the Messiah who comes from that little town and how he would be the eternal one. He would come as a shepherd watching his flock. He would come bringing peace. Bethlehem. Jesus from Bethlehem. Every time I saw Bethlehem in the Old Testament, I saw Jesus, 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 Jesus. And then I even saw the right order. Is that incredible? Only the Bible, inspired word of God. Now, what about the other name? We're familiar with the name Bethlehem. Beth is a Hebrew word for house. Lechem, Lechem, you know, is the word for bread. So Bethlehem means the house of bread. Isn't it significant that the bread of life was born in the house of bread? That's clever. That's pretty cool. But it's called Ephratah, Bethlehem Ephratah. What's this Ephratah? Or where is this Ephratah? Ephratah was actually the name that Bethlehem was known by previously. Ephratah means a fruitful place. And Bethlehem and its surrounding areas are actually the breadbasket for all of Israel. So very fruitful place. What would come from Bethlehem would produce much fruit. Of course, Jesus Christ has done that. Now, I want you to really think outside the box with me. Can you do that? Just really think outside the box here. I was thinking about this story, this birth narrative that we've read about Jesus. And then some parallels came to mind. And I I thought, I I just can't believe how, how these things fit together. I'll share them with you. Think about them. Angels declared his birth. Angels declared Jesus' resurrection. Bethlehem was where Israel's greatest king, David, was born. Jesus Christ, the great king, was born in Bethlehem. When Jesus was born, he was offered gifts. When he ascended into heaven... We're told he gave gifts to men. No one expected Israel's king to come from Bethlehem. I mean, look at David, look at Jesus. No one was expecting the Messiah to be there born in Bethlehem. When he was born, uh, Jesus was placed on a stone, a stone manger. It was like a a piece of stone with a uh, just place carved out to put the the grain for the animals. When he was born, he was placed on a stone. When he died, his body was placed on a stone. When he was born, he was born in a borrowed stable. When he was buried, he was placed in a borrowed tomb. He was born in the fields of Bethlehem. The lambs for Passover were born and being raised. He was the Passover lamb the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, born where the Passover lambs were born. When he was born, he was wrapped in swaddling cloths. After he died, his body was wrapped in linen cloths. Those cloths that wrapped his body signed that we're supposed to make the shepherds believe 
This is the Messiah. When Peter saw the empty linen looking into the tomb, it caused him to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Wise man looked for him throughout his ministry. Wise men sought him. He was born in the dark. He died in the dark. After offering sacrifice, Jesus was presented in the temple by his mom and dad, and there he was declared to be the Savior, the Messiah, and the light. We just read that. After his resurrection, Jesus ascended into the heavenly temple and offered his sacrifice to God the Father. After offering his life as a sacrifice for his sins, the Father did what Simeon did. The Father declared Jesus to be the only Savior in the light of the world. Jesus came the first time as a lowly baby, but he will return in power and glory. He was crowned with thorns, but now he is crowned with glory and great honor. It goes without saying that this little short time in Bethlehem that we've had together has changed our lives.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. It is God-breathed by His Spirit through His spokesman. Every bit is from His mouth. Every bit. It is not from man. It is from God. Therefore, you better heed it. That's the point. Therefore, you better listen because it's from God. You better listen to what God has to say in His Word. It's not up to you to decide what it means. You better listen. Let me share some passages specifically where God reveals in His Word that His Word came from Him. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 23 to start with, and God is comparing the bad guys versus the true guys. And He's going to say, the bad guys do this stuff, but this is what they should have done if they were my guys. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 21. And I wish I could read the whole portion because there's so much here, but let me read this portion. Verse 21, I did not send these prophets. By the way, the condition in Israel was, they're in sin, God had been sending his faithful prophets to tell them to repent, they hadn't repented, and there were a group of bad prophets saying, you're okay, peace and safety, God's not upset with you. Alright? But he was. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not, what? Speak to them. See that? But they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have what? Announced my words. It's God's word, not their word, right? And my words to my people would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have been saying, who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in their hearts, the prophets who prophesy falsehood? Even these prophets of the deception of their own heart? You see, they're doing it from their own heart. That's not God's word. God's word never came about from an act of human will. Who intended to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal? The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. Let those false prophets say their stuff, but if you have his word, speak his word. You see that? What does the straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that shatters a rock? Therefore I am against the prophets, declares the Lord. Another amazing Old Testament passage, turn to Zechariah chapter 7. Speaking of the stubborn Israelites that wouldn't believe the word of God. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 11. And here we see that the prophets were sharing forth very clearly that the Spirit of God is what brought forth the word of God, by the way. The Spirit brought forth 
the word of God. Zechariah 7.11 But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stooped their ears from hearing. That's speaking of God's word they were turning away from, by the way. And they made their hearts like flint, Zechariah 7.12, so that they could not hear the words of the Lord of hosts, which he had sent by the Holy Spirit through the former prophets. God, by his Spirit, sent forth his word through the prophets. No prophecy of Scripture was ever made no prophecy ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. What about 2 Samuel? Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. David understood when he was speaking God's word, it was God's word, that it was by his Spirit. David knew it. 2 Samuel 23. David, a man after God's own heart. He messed up and he suffered greatly, but he's still a man after God's own heart. Good man in the Lord. 2 Samuel 23, verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, and the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Look at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord spoke spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The Spirit brought forth God's word through men. It was not by men. David understands that. The God of Israel said, now he said it through David by his Spirit, right? The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God. Look at Acts chapter 4. And there's other places in this. In chapter 1 you'll find it also. But in Acts chapter 4, the Jews who believed on the day of Pentecost understood that it was the Spirit of God that spoke through men. It is not up for grabs, the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Therefore, better heed it. Men didn't figure it out. Bring it forth. God brought it forth. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord, saying, O Lord, we're praying now, it is thou who dost make heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David's servant did say, we know this, first of all, through a believer, God spoke through his word by spirit, right? And these believers on Pentecost say, who by the spirit through the mouth of our father David did it say, and he's going to actually quote Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of earth took their stand and rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They understood that your spirit through the mouth of David brought forth the word of God. We know 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. Literally, God breathed. It is God breathed. Theonustos, it is God-breathed, all Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, turn there. You see, because if you're a true believer, you accept the Word of God. You know this first of all, therefore you better heed it. We need to be reminded, right? You know, God's Word is not a suggestion to us. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. You know, as I look in Scripture, people who really got saved, you could tell they got saved. And actually, Paul praises God for that. There was evidence. There was a change. There was evidence. 
First Thessalonians 2.13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, and that's God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men. That's what we're talking about in our passage, right? But for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. All scripture is breathed out by God. Therefore, we better heed it. God is speaking to us through his word, and he did it through men by his spirit. But it was not of any of their own will or desire that it came forth. It was all God. Our passage is saying that no prophecy ever came about by an act of human will, but men moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God brought forth his word by his spirit through his spokesman. Every bit is from him, therefore we need to pay attention. And brothers and sisters, if you don't believe God's word is from God, then maybe you don't know the Lord. Let me share a couple passages. Turn to John chapter 10. You see, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, genuine faith, you receive the Spirit of God and the ability to now understand His Word. It's written on our hearts. John chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These bear witness of me. Verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If you're a true believer, you hear his voice. When I share the word of God to you, you're not saying, oh, that's Greg. When you hear the word of God, you hear that, you go, that's God's word. God brought it forth. Look at 1 John chapter 4, 1 John 4. When someone says, hey, I believe this, but I don't believe what Paul says. I like what Jesus says. I don't. You know what? I'm sorry they're not saved. Share the gospel. Don't argue with them. Love them. Share the gospel. They need a savior. Don't argue about creation. Don't argue about evolution. Share their need of a savior. Jesus, who died for their sins, they need a savior. And once they become saved, they're going to have the spirit of God, and they're going to go, oh, I believe it. You see? Don't waste your time arguing. Share the gospel. First John 4. Verse 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, the context is false prophets going into the world. They're the bad guys. You're the good guys. You're from God. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. The world listens to bad guys, right? You know, an evildoer listens to wicked lips, by the way. That's the Proverbs, right? Okay? And then he says here, we, speaking of the apostles, are from God. He who knows God... Listens to us. He was not from God, does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and spirit of error. If you don't listen, believe the truth, you're not from God. But you can be. Because Jesus Christ died to save sinners, to which we all are. So what's one of the major implications? Let's look back at our passage in chapter 1 of Second Peter, verse 20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture becomes, on a continual basis, a matter of someone to interpret. That's another evidence there that's more about the interpretation rather than having brought forth. Not became in one time, but becomes. 
For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Since God's word is not from man, it's not up to you to figure out what it is. God had an intended meaning, and he illumines that by his spirit. Turn to our last passage I want to share to 2 Corinthians, where we see that all believers have the spirit of God and have the ability to understand the things freely given to us by God. You see, when you trust in Jesus Christ, if you truly have, you receive the Spirit of God. Now, if you're in sin, your heart is hard. You've got to confess that. If you're not humbly coming to the Word of God, or you're coming in a haughty manner. Look at what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians. And the context here is they're boasting about this man and that guy and this stuff and that stuff. And Paul's making a case that if you boast, boast in the Lord. And he gives his example of how he came to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. That should be class number one for all preachers in seminary. Okay? Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak what? God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which I have not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man. God's word never came about from man. We never could have imagined what he would have said. It never came about in our heart. He says here, all that God has prepared for those who love him, speaking in context of his word, for to us... God revealed them through the Spirit, right? God revealed his word to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, notice this, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. If you have the Spirit of God, you can know what God has said. You see, we've received the Spirit that we might know those things. And notice what he says, which things we also speak. Not words taught with human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. But a natural man that's an unbeliever doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual praises all things. Yet he himself is praised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have those things which have never entered into the heart of man, which were never heard, never thought of. God revealed them to us by his spirit. Therefore, we need to listen. We need to pay attention. You see, I began talking about the reality that we listen to those whom we respect. We listen to those in whom we love. And we are to heed the word of God and do well by paying attention. And our passage is completely about the fact 
that this is from God and not from man. So I want to ask you, is there any area where you've been listening to other voices? You've been listening to things that are not from God? Not allowing His Word to illumine your heart and your life? All throughout the Christian church, there's all kinds of counseling and stuff and things that people come for their Christian life that doesn't line up with the Word of God? We've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. doesn't mean a counselor can't use the Word of God. Praise the Lord if they do. But it's God's Word that we do well to heed. We listen to those whom we respect. We listen to those whom we love. Are you listening to God's Word? If you're not, I would posit to you, maybe you don't have a relationship with the Lord. And if you do, maybe you don't love Him and respect Him the way that you should. There's sin in the way. You can just confess, and God will forgive you. You can humble yourself and say, Lord, I've been stubborn. I've been foolish. I haven't heeded your word. Lord, I'm sorry. I confess that. You'll be forgiven. You'll be set free. And then heed his word. Do well to pay attention because it's God's word and not man's word. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.